Good morning, Grace Place Church. So excited you're here. As most of you know, of course, most of us are in Texas. We had a massive ice storm, record freezing temperatures, and unfortunately, our physical campus in Round Rock had a problem with flooding in our children's classroom, which went into the auditorium with a whole bunch of water all over the whole building and a lot of damage. So we are going to be doing online church for the next couple of weeks, just like we did last week because of the ice storm. And that's okay. Thank God that we have those resources. So our Round Rock campus, of course, is closed today, as you know, and also next week. And, and hopefully we'll be able to get it open up soon. In the interim, we're having church today from our Gerald campus, my living room. And I'm excited to have you in my living room. And of course, those of you who have seen me speak before know that I really like to start with a couple of jokes. So let's just clear the air. We're going to have a fun day today. People who say go big or go home seriously underestimate my willingness to go home. Like it's literally my only goal. A father and a son are having a conversation. The son says, Dad, there's a small get-together at school tomorrow. Father says, small get-together? How small? Just me, you, and the principal. Somebody asked me what to do with leftover bacon. I've never heard of that kind of bacon. Is it new? I made a slide deck today, uh, but the camera does not transition well into the television. And in fact, you couldn't really see it at all. So uh, we're, we don't have any slides for you. I'm not going to have verses on camera for you today, but I will tell you where we are every time that we read somewhere. Our main text, if you want to turn there and follow along with me, is going to be found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. Did you know that joy is serious business in heaven? As it would turn out, God is in a good mood. It's such a serious business in heaven that Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, For the joy set before him, the Lord endured the cross. Well, what was the joy set before him? You were. And I was. We were the joy that was set before him. Now, a lot of times we lose focus on that and we lose focus on God. In fact, very often when a person leaves their faith, they go back to the very thing which they left when they first came to faith. It's a slave mindset. Either you have a big problem or you have a big God. It's entirely our choice. And thus we enter the life of the Israelites in the book of Exodus in chapter 20. I want you to imagine with me that you're a Hebrew slave. Your life is toil and hard work. You wake up early in the morning and it's a cool morning and you feel the cool breeze on your back, but you know it's all a facade because that piercing desert sun is going to be coming on your back in just a matter of hours. And it's rough. And your life is hard. You work all day and all night in terrible conditions because you're a slave. Every day you toil and struggle with a bunch of people from your, uh, from your class, from your tribe, fellow Hebrews, and you're the lowest in the Egyptian hierarchy. You're a nobody. You know, the odds of you ever having heard of Moses are pretty abysmal. 
I mean, he hasn't lived amongst your people since he was a baby. And, and certainly he hasn't had any interaction with your tribe in four decades. It's not like he had a Facebook profile. And even if he did, what, what's that to you? You're a slave. You clock in in the morning and you clock out at night, all with the hopes that you have enough to eat and you don't die. And then some guy shows up and supposedly he's heard from God and he wants to save you from your monotonous life in hell. And all that sounds nice, you think. But who the heck are you? If you don't get your quota of bricks made, you're going to be beaten. And it's not like there was an Egyptian workforce committee to plead your case. Your life is slavery. You are a slave. Moses, by contrast, is about to begin the quest of a lifetime. The quest from which his palace upbringing was necessary and the antidote to the slave mindset that the Hebrew slaves had. Which begs the question, who in the heck is Moses? Well, Moses is 40 years out of his pampered palace life of influence, having spent now four decades in the wilderness himself. Well, why was he in the wilderness in the first place, you ask? Murder. That's a good place to start. Especially, murder is always bad, but especially if you, you are an Israelite living in the palace of an Egyptian pharaoh and you kill an Egyptian. Moses' mission? To convince the Israelites that he's following orders from God to lead a group of complaining, grumbling populace of ragtag slaves out of Egypt. To follow a cloud by day and a supernatural pillar of fire by night. And of course, by now, any reasonably intelligent person is starting to see how absurd this plan is. And it is absurd, save for the fact that you've witnessed plagues of, well, biblical proportions. Enormous swarms of locusts, boils, frogs, and God forbid, the death of every Egyptian firstborn. And as it would turn out, God didn't forbid, because that's exactly what happened. And you heard the cries of the Egyptian mothers as they awoke to find the lifeless bodies of their own dead children. But then again, you also witnessed the firstborn of your own people, miraculously saved because of the Passover lamb. It's why the Jews to this day celebrate Passover is because of this story. And the common denominator in all this is a guy who had a conversation with a talking bush. That's Moses. Now, when you look back at how all, all this came about through that lens, you can see why the Israelites were trepidatious at best and probably a little bit sarcastic. You can even get a, a glimpse of their sarcasm in Exodus chapter 14, verses 11 and 12. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Is not what we said to you, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, if you say that in Rodney Dangerfield's voice, it's even funnier. I tell you, I can't get no respect. To the average Egyptian slave, your people have known slavery for 430 years. Now think about that. Most average Americans couldn't even tell you the details 
of the Revolutionary War, which was approximately half the time ago. I mean, these guys are slaves, and they've been slaves for a long time. And that mindset of slavery has gotten into the, their DNA. How can we, the modern reader, expect them to see themselves in any other way? Now, the Israelites' perspective of God was pretty much at an arm's length. You remember the story when Moses was going to go talk to God, and they said, no, you, you, go, you go talk to God, Moses, and, and we'll do whatever you say, but, but we won't go talk to him lest he kill us, lest we die. But who was God to them? God was so revered and so respected that they didn't even dare utter his name. There was no casual cursing here. They respected him. And yet the biblical narrative shows us so much disbelief in their own mindset and their inability to really decipher the fact that God was for them. But you and I aren't really different. Oftentimes, when a person leaves their faith, it's because we think that God is not for us. Maybe something happened to us, or God didn't answer our prayer quite the way that we'd hoped, and we get angry with God. This is the life of the Israelite slaves. They're afraid of him. Chris Valton writes in his book, The Supernatural Ways of Royalty, a leader who is in slavery internally cannot free those who are in slavery externally. And perhaps you respond, oh, that's great, but I'm no dang slave. And you're right, provided your only definition of slavery is that of forced labor. labor. Suppose you're addicted to an illicit drug. You've lost your family, you've lost your home, you've lost your job, but you keep coming back to it. And you've fallen asleep in some hellish environments, and you know if you don't stop, it's going to kill you, but you're trapped. And you keep coming back to the drug that has you enslaved, and eventually you lose your freedom, and you find yourself in jail. And often not even that fixes the problem. According to some rehab centers, some 80 to 95% of people relapse on opiates after their treatment. I mean, this thing has its tentacles wrapped around you and it's trying to take you down. And of course, you go around telling yourself your brand narrative. I'm nothing but a junkie. My life has no meaning. Big problem little God. You're a slave. But maybe you've struck the pity chord with somebody, which is usually your mother, and your mother bails you out of jail, and you're determined to get it right this time, but you find that same old town with the same old friends and the same old co-workers and the same old triggers, and you fall head first back into the grave of your own digging. Digging. You've become exactly what you didn't plan on becoming. The chains of slavery are tightening around your wrists and barring a miracle of God. The probability of you getting out of this mess is subjacent to the lowest pit in hell. You're stuck. 
Maybe that isn't your problem. Maybe it's internet porn. Internet porn is the fastest growing addiction in America. According to CovenantEyes.com, which is a Christian organization dedicated to helping get people off of their porn addiction and beat their porn addiction, some 28,258 users are watching pornographic material every second. One, two, three. Some $3,075 is spent on internet porn every second. And if you think the church is free from it, one in five youth pastors admit to struggling or occasionally using internet porn. And one in seven senior pastors. And perhaps equally as alarming, 68% of divorce cases involve meeting a new lover over the internet. 70% of wives of sex addicts could be diagnosed with PTSD. Porn users are more likely to try illicit things and they're less likely to earn a healthy, sustainable, monogamous relationship. They're driven by that next hit of dopamine. It's modern day slavery. Guard your kids and monitor what they're doing on their phone because there's a real enemy out there. Jesus talked about them in John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Um, but that verse doesn't end. There's hope in the resurrection of God. Jesus finishes that verse by saying, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Maybe it's not illicit drugs. Maybe it's not pornographic material. Maybe it's your work. You put in countless hours ignoring your family, ignoring your health because you think your significance is found in your performance. You're driven by the will to succeed and to perform so that you can get your next paycheck, your next car, your next house, a bigger portfolio, or whatever it is that you're striving for. And then you get to the end of your life and you've had a successful career but you've hurt your relationships with your family, your children, your friends. You've worshiped at the altar of your career and you sacrificed your life. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you're already in a relationship. Maybe you're married and your focus is on your spouse. Your focus is on your boyfriend or your girlfriend, but you put so much of your hope in them that you've given them a God complex. You've made them a God. And then they let you down. Or maybe you're seeking a relationship and you think your life would be complete if you just had a wife, if you just had a husband, everything would be complete. You're searching for what you want instead of focusing on who God has meant you to be. You remember that film, Jerry Maguire? <laughs> you know, You Complete Me? And you think, if I could just have him, if I could just have her, then I'd be complete. And meanwhile, God's reaching out to you. He's saying, if you know, if you, if you would just focus on me, which finally brings us to our first commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3.
you shall have no other gods before me. Now, people often criticize God for his first commandment. <laughs> Does he have no self-esteem? Has it ever occurred to you that nothing occurs to God? I'm going to go off on a, a slight rabbit trail. This is who God is. We think of the name of God as Yahweh. We've sang that song, Yahweh, Yahweh. We've, we've heard that name before. Well, in Hebrew, it would not have been written with vowels. So the spelling that we think of, which is Y-A-H-W-E-H, would be Y-H-V-H. Or sometimes you see it Y-H-W-H, because there were no vowels in ancient Hebrew. But it gets even more interesting. Ancient rabbis would tell you that your breath is the pronunciation of it. So it would sound like this. Yod, ha, vav, ha. So every time you breathe, you're saying the name of God. It's the first thing a newborn baby does when he or she is born. They breathe. Is it just breath? Or are they saying the name of God? I was fortunate enough to be in the hospital when my grandmother passed away. In fact, I was holding her hand when she gave up her spirit and was ushered into heaven. And I heard her last breath. Was it her last breath? Or was it the last time that she was able to breathe the name of God? That's who God is. You think he needs your worship? Out of his very breath do you draw your breath. He created you out of a microscopic sperm and an egg that's no bigger than 0.1 millimeters. I mean, God is big. When he sneezes, solar systems are created. I'm being a little hyperbolic. But he doesn't seem to have enough self-confidence, so he created people to worship him. Nonsense. This idea is as preposterous as it sounds. He's concerned with who or what you worship because he knows one thing to be true about all of humanity, and that is this, and you should write this down. You become precisely what you worship. You become precisely what you worship. You become what you worship. If you're a Christian, the aim is not to become a better version of you. The aim is to become a new you. You are a new creation. Go back to the, your baptism. If you were baptized, go, go back to that moment. You are buried with Christ. Why are we buried with Christ? Because your old man, your old woman is dead. You're buried with Christ. But you rose to walk a brand new life. You have been raised to life in Christ Jesus. When you understand the human propensity to worship things that don't matter, it helps at least to have an understanding of who God is versus who is your God. Well, who is your God? 
Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 teaches us that we were created in the image of a holy God. Romans chapter 8 verses 17 teaches us that we are to be heirs with his son to the throne. This, this is why the writer of Hebrews told us in, in Hebrews chapter 12, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles. Sin isn't just sin, just because the Bible says it's a sin. Though it is a sin if the Bible says it's a sin. But sin isn't sin just, just because the Bible says it's a sin. Well, what is sin? Sin is defined by the character of God. And anything that draws you away from his character, anything that draws you away from him, is contrary to your design. So now what? Do you really want to know joy? Then pursue God. You shall have no other gods before me. It's not that careers are bad or that spouses are bad or relationships are bad. You know, those things are good. In fact, they're gifts from God. But they're not God. And they can't become a God in your life or in my life. Because if they take your focus away from God, they've taken you out of your design and they've taken you out of your purpose. This week at school, one of our revival group pastors said this quote that I, I love, so I, I want to read it to you. She said, everything you do as a Christian is out of intimacy. He wants us to live a life where we are not trying to be Christians, but we are, we are transformed by Christ. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Isaiah chapter 33, verse 12 says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. That's what it's like knowing God. You know, we're all concerned with our destination. We go back and, and we read these stories from the very beginning all the way to the end. People were concerned with their destination. It's like we have our goal and we're not happy until we get our goal. And God just enjoys being with you in the journey. God says, I know, I know that that's what you want. I know that's where you're going. I know that's your dream. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added. There's so many examples of people in the Bible who gave up everything. If you go into the New Testament, what did Jesus tell his disciples when he was first recruiting them? Follow me. These people left their businesses. They left their homes. They left their lives. Some of them left boats on the water, which I think is crazy and hysterical through modern eyes. They left their boats on the water to follow me. 
This Jesus, who was so compelling, so loving, and there was something about his character and his spirit that people were attracted to. And that is the Christian experience. When you go after God with all of your heart, when you have no other gods before him, people see something in you and they want to know what is that spark in your eyes? What is it that makes him tick? What is it that makes her tick? I want that. We, I, I preached, I don't remember when, a couple months ago at Wednesday worship and we talked about being kingdom influencers. Everywhere we go, we should be bringing, pardon the redundancy, we should bring the kingdom of God with us everywhere we go. We should be prepared and so close to the Holy Spirit that when we walk into the room, the atmosphere changes. And it's not an atmosphere of depression. It's not an atmosphere of oppression. It's an atmosphere of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. When we walk into a room and there's a hurting world all around us and we bring the hope of the world. I love how Jesus told his disciples, I am the hope of the world. But then later he told his disciples, you are the hope of the world. Then he told them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the, the city on the hill. That's who you are. If you follow Jesus, that's who you are. Everywhere you go, you bring hope. Everywhere you go, you bring joy. Everywhere you go, you bring the kingdom. We pray in Matthew 6, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. That tells us that it's not something that we just pray at funerals. It's not something that we just pray but not really think about the meaning. We're actually bringing revival. We're actually bringing the kingdom of God with us everywhere we go. And that is the greatest hope. But it starts, it has to start with having no other gods before him. I love you, church, and we hope, I hope to see you in person very soon.